Welcome to the Board Game Workshop. I'm your host, Chris Anderson. In this contributor episode, Travis talks about unique themes, Matt discusses solo variants, and Cassie and Eric join me to answer some listener questions. We're almost out of listener questions, so if you'd like to have a question answered on a future episode, send it to questions at theboardgameworkshop.com. Now, on to the show. My name is Travis Drake, and I'm the founder of Brouhaha Games. Today I'm going to talk to you about choosing a unique theme for your game. So to start out, I'm going to talk about why would you want a unique theme for your game. Um, there's three key benefits. Uh, the first one is that you will stand out within your genre. Uh, so for an example for that, um, my current game that I'm publishing, Pumpkin Patch Bad Seeds, uh, is a little bit of a twist on the farming genre. Instead of real-life farming that you find something like Agricola, um, I'm using mutant pumpkins instead. That means that you're able to both tap into the market of people who like farming games, but also get a new audience who maybe traditionally wouldn't like farming games. Uh, the second key key unique benefit to choosing a unique theme is you stand out between genres. Uh, as anybody in the board gaming business knows, fantasy, sci-fi, trading in the Mediterranean, um, these are all really well-saturated spaces. They're very competitive. Uh, a large majority of the games that come out in board games fall under one of those three themes. Um, an example of why that's bad for you as, as a designer or a publisher is if you release a Euro about trading in the Mediterranean, um, you'll have a dozen games to compete with that year at least. Uh, if you release a Euro about running a graveyard, uh, all of a sudden there's no direct competitors, right? Like you're still competing with other Euros, but you're not competing on theme. Um, this helps you really differentiate your product. And the, the third reason why a unique theme is really beneficial to you is that you can tap into fresh audiences and uh, um, underserved demographics. Uh, and I have a couple examples of this. Um, the very first example, and I think this is the best example I've seen, is Genius Games. Um, Genius Games makes games about chemistry, biology, uh, sort of all these hard science topics. They've sold 15,000 games on Kickstarter, and I imagine many, many more to retail because they create hobby games with a theme where there's no direct competition. There's nobody else making games about atoms and molecules, so everybody who's interested in science and board games, they've completely captured that market. Um, so that's a great example of how a unique theme can sort of put you... Um, you're playing a different game than everybody else. You're competing in a space where there's no competition. Um, so that that's a, a fresh audience. Um, underserved demographics are another reason you want a unique theme, though. Uh, for this example, I'm going to share a little bit of insight into the game I currently have on Kickstarter, which is um, Pumpkin Patch. Um, interestingly enough, I'm tapping into um, two different demographics that you don't necessarily normally see in board games as much, or they're, they're underserved. Uh, the first one is my game is disproportionately Proportionately popular with women. Uh, I don't know what that reason is. I have some speculation. Um, maybe because it's not a war game or it's not a theme that uh, generally is aimed more towards male gamers. Uh, but uh, they're more likely to click on my ads. They're more likely to buy the game. Um, it's an underserved demographic in the, the board game community. Um, and the second one is, is by having a unique theme, you can advertise to people who don't have games made for them. So somebody like uh, Halloween fanatics, there's people who really like carving pumpkins. Um, it, there's a whole subgenre of Halloween lovers who just love carving pumpkins, and, and they, they do it obsessively um, for a large part of the year. Uh, there's not really a game for these people. There's not a lot of pumpkin games, and I'll touch on this a little bit more. Uh, but I, I would consider any 
any demographic that's not being served, like hard sciences before Genius Games came along, uh, there's a real opportunity there to make a game that appeals to those people as well, when they might not have something that appeals to a mix of their interests. Um, the, the second thing I'm going to talk about is how do you make sure that your game theme is unique? Uh, so it, it's one thing to say, okay, you need to have a unique theme, but how do you make sure that you're not directly competing with something else that's coming out? Uh, the very first thing I did when I was looking at how I wanted to theme my game is I went on Board, board Game Geek and I searched different terms um, within, my, within my theme of Mutant Pumpkins. Um, and here's a few rules of thumb. These aren't hard and fast, but they should help you get an idea of, is my theme unique enough uh, that I'm not going to be um, competing with other, other, other publishers or other designers in this space? Uh, if there are more than 10 games using your theme, your theme is probably not unique. That doesn't mean it's not good or not valuable. It's just not unique. Um, are there one or two well-known games using your theme? Uh, so an example of this would be uh, when you have something like Terraforming Mars... Uh, three or four years ago, Mars would have been a very unique theme. Not a lot of games about colonizing Mars. But now that you have one really popular game in that space, it makes it so anything you make will be directly compared to that, especially if it's in the, in the Euro area or a similar type of game. Um, so try to avoid themes that popular games use, but also themes that have just been used a lot, even if it's not by popular games. And then the, the third criteria I sort of use to see uh, if the theme is unique, is has there been a successful Kickstarter, even a, a modestly successful Kickstarter, uh, or retail release using your theme in the last year? Uh, if so, your theme is not unique. The reason being is if if there is uh, you have a new idea, let's say you want to uh, make a Euro about running a graveyard, and this has been done, um, if there's a game released in the last year, all the people who are enthusiastic about it probably already know about it, or they've at least heard of it. So you, you have not just a competitor in general, but a competitor that released recently. Uh, so that's something to think about. Um, the, the next point I want to touch on is, is a unique theme always valuable? Um, and I'm going to say no. Uh, being different doesn't mean you're useful or you're compelling. Uh, if you want your unique theme to be something that's really going to draw people in, that's really going to sell games, it ha there has to be a passionate audience for your theme. Uh, one of the reasons I chose Halloween, I mean, I, I love Halloween, that's why most of my games are going to be themed um, around it, but one of the reasons I chose Halloween and Pumpkins in particular is because I know there's a really passionate audience uh, behind this idea, and so if you love board games and you love pumpkins, um, there's not a lot of games that, that really fit that theme, so I knew that I knew that there were, there were people passionate about it because I'm passionate about it, and I know that that's an underserved demographic. Uh, the, the, the second point of, is a unique theme always valuable that I want to talk about is, um, does your theme create a compelling experience? So just being different isn't enough, right? Um, you could have a really unique theme. For example, let's say you have a, a theme about uh, building PCs, like building your own computer, your own gaming station. Um, you have an audience there. You have people who really like to do that. And you have a really unique theme. I've never seen a game about that. Uh, there might be, but when I looked on Board Game Geek, I couldn't find anything. Uh, and so there's not a lot of co competition, but can you make a compelling experience out of that? Um, does it really capture people's imagination? Does it uh, create a unique um, around-the-table storytelling experience to talk about building PCs? I would argue probably not, but now that I've said that, feel free to take that challenge up and go into the world and make the best PC-building game in existence. Uh, so in closing, um, 
I think it is really valuable to have a unique theme as long as you make sure it's truly unique and that there's an audience for it that's passionate about it. Um, and there are an infinite amount of unexplored themes in board games. Board games are still relatively new, and even with as many as there are coming out, most of them fall under the umbrella of really established themes. Um, I originally thought that uh, a pumpkin patch game wouldn't be unique. I thought for sure people had made a lot of games about pumpkin patch, but when I did my board game geek search, it turned out that wasn't a case. Um, And and a lot of people say, oh, well, all all the good ideas are taken. Um, If you really want to brainstorm unique themes and and you're just, the creative juices aren't flowing on your own, go on to a Facebook group or onto Twitter and and tweet up tweet out some really creative designers and say, what are some themes that haven't been used? And the amount of stuff I see when, when these conversations pop up, I just see hundreds and hundreds of themes um, that, that have no board games. And when you see them, it really gets your creative juices flowing. You're like, oh, wow, that would be something really cool to make a board game about. Uh, so it can work the other way, too. It's not just building your board game to a theme, but when you have a theme... Uh, you can build mechanics around that, and it, it gets your creativity going, um, doing top-down design as opposed to bottom-up. And then finally, the last place to go if you want some unique themes are Jason Tagmeyer of Button Shy Games does a podcast um, where he explores uh, themes and games by using a word. They design a game. Him and usually one other designer uh, design a game around a word, and this comes out five days a week, I believe. Uh, so that's they've got hundreds of these already. Um, so check out Jason's podcast if you want some more ideas. That's all I have for today. Uh, thanks very much for your time, and go make some games with unique themes. Hello everyone, this is Matt Shoemaker from Hit Him With A Shoe, and for this month I wanted to talk to you all a little bit about solo variants in your game. So many games these days are starting to include solo variants, and there's a variety of reasons why. Uh, For one, there's many solo players out there. Solo seems to be a growing genre of game out there, uh, and as such it makes sense that if it makes sense for your game, there's no reason you shouldn't include a solo variant to help expand your audience. Solo variants help uh, you expand your market, Uh, they can help you get more backers if you are self-publishing on Kickstarter, and they also just uh, help you get the word out by reaching solo players who also usually have groups of friends who wish to play non-solo games. So there's really no reason to leave this section out of your game, or at least consider adding one to it. Uh, Solo is also attractive because there's a quicker turnaround time in the early development phase, uh, usually with self-testing Solo, since that is the game environment you are looking at for this type of variant. Um, You can examine it, reprocess things in your head, and reprototype in a much quicker fashion. Uh, Testing your Solo game by yourself also helps create new ways that you can think about your game. It helps showcase new strategies, open up uh, possible flaws that you may have missed and showcase them to you, Uh, and it really just uh, provides just a new light to look at the multiplayer version of your game, even if that's the standard way to look at it. Uh, At least considering solo games has has very few uh, downsides to it, and I recommend you do it. Uh, 
there are definitely some do's and don'ts, though, when you're talking about adding a solo variant to your game. Um, the first thing you need to do is make sure you talk to solo players. This is particularly important uh, if you yourself are not much of a solo gamer. You need to see what they uh, enjoy in solo games, what is it that they like about them, um, what kind of gameplay do they like to see, what kind of challenges do they enjoy, um, just what is it that they enjoy about solo games and what is attractive to them about uh, your design. Something that I think we designers forget sometimes, whether it's for a solo version or a multiplayer version of our games, is that we can talk to people about what they like about our designs before we're finished with with the game and in a, in a real state that we're happy with. Um, there's no uh, shame in getting feedback on someone and incorporating that into the game outside of playtesting, even just talking about what it is that you're trying to achieve. And I think this is very important when working with any type of variants of your game that you haven't uh, really explored too much in the past with prior development. Something else you need to think about is that solo players like to um, play games that can have multi-modes to them. And what I mean by this is look at specifically challenges and different campaign modes you can add to your game. Now, challenges are taking maybe your base solo variant and adding some specific goals that they need to achieve, whether it's in-game goals. Um, for example, in B-Lives, I have some challenges added in of only using certain queens or getting a map to the certain way um, or surviving under certain circumstances. So adding challenges like that help add additional gameplay to the solo mode of your game and provide something that solo players can really use to get the most out of it if they are sick of just running through the regular vanilla solo variant of it. Now, campaign modes are an extension of the challenge. So while a challenge may be something as simple as get more than 100 points in your game, the campaign mode you can think of as almost a miniature legacy version of your game. Um, this could be something that takes place over multiple playthroughs, um, doesn't necessarily have to have a save state or anything like that. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, again, in B-Lives, uh, one of the campaign modes that I have in this is something I'm calling Wildfire. So this adds an element to the game that isn't normally in it, where you play through one game year, which would be the standard version of the game, um, build your map up, and then the second year the map is on fire. So you need to start flipping over tiles to your terrain as they are destroyed each month of the game, and you need to avoid uh, the fire by moving across the map um, for the next year to uh, both survive as you normally do for normal victory conditions, but also not have your hive consumed in the fire itself. Adding campaign modes like this will help uh, extend the replayability for solo players and also give them something more attractive that shows that you've really um, taken heed of what they like to play and uh, extend what they can do with your game. Um, something else that you need to provide for solo play is a rubric for success. And what I mean by that is just a general example of what kind of uh, victory conditions solo players can expect to meet to give themselves goals to hit. Everyone likes to know if they're doing good. If you're playing multiplayer, you know you've done well if you have beaten your opponents. Well, if you're playing by yourself, um, how are you going to know if you are improving or not? 
one way is to do that, uh, this is uh, an example, is if your point is based on victory points, what is an average score? Is 50 points average? Is that very good? Is that poor? Um, what about 100? Is 100 a very good score? Um, maybe uh, you should build that in through your own playthroughs, take notes on that, get it from your playtesting for people that work on the solo game, and include that um, so they have goals to shoot for. Solo gamers definitely appreciate this. Next thing you need to do is make sure that even though it's a solo game, you are playtesting it with others. You uh, can't take it for granted that it's a solo game, so you are the only playtester. You need to get other eyes on these variants of the games. And there's one thing that I like about this is that even though it may seem like it's difficult to playtest solo game or games because you can't describe the rules as well, it, that you can't kind of observe in the same way you do a multiplayer game and explain as you go, um, you can, but it really kind of, the experience of playing a solo game is just so much different than a multiplayer game that it, it doesn't work as well in my uh, experience. So what I like to do is something that you can take from user experience studies, and that is record the play sessions. And specifically, ask the person to dictate what they are doing in their mind, why they are making their decisions. This is great because you don't actually need to be there. You can actually use this as a sort of blind play test. It doesn't really work for multiplayer games, but it works very well for solo where you just ask someone to literally talk through every decision they're making in the game while they're recording it, and then you can watch it later. This will give you insight into their thought processes, show not only what uh, graphic design problems your game may have if you're at that point, but also what kinds of logic issues you have, uh, what kind of rules, uh, holes you have, things like that. And it is really just great for being able to find things um, that are problems in your game and what's actually working well um, for both the solo and sometimes it will leak into the multiplayer variant as well. Something you don't want to do is shoehorn solo play in just because. Solo is not a good variant for every game. Um, many games you can make it work. It works well for things like Euros, but uh, if you've got, a, say, an Ameritrash-style game or a two-player card game, it may just not work for Solo. Um, so with that in mind, you don't want to just slap a Solo variant on because you want to reach out to the Solo players. Um, if, uh, that doesn't mean you can't tell them that you didn't consider them in your design processes, but maybe just illustrate why you don't think Solo is a good fit um, and hope that you are appreciated for at least trying to add it to your design. Finally, don't take solo players for granted. Just because you build the game in there, you need to play test it. You need to um, share that variant with solo gamers. Um, you need to do everything you do with a general multiplayer version of your game. Um, you can't just assume because you slapped on some solo play at the end of the development process that it's going to be good, uh, and uh, eventually you're going to just get ill will from the solo community if you do that. So don't add solo if it doesn't make sense and take it seriously. Make sure you test it adequately as well. So those are my thoughts on solo play. Um, before I end this segment, though, I did want to let you know that Gen Con is coming up, and uh, I will be at a booth there, booth 3058, and a lot of the weekend, Carla from Weird Giraffe Games, who's done Fire in the Library, um, 
and Stellar Leap is going to be at our booth as well. We are going to be selling her games, so you can come by and demo Bee Lies We Only Know Summer, as well as pick up Carla's games and maybe talk to both her and I. Um, and I also wanted to use this as an opportunity to let you know that next month I will be talking about what it's like to show your game at Gen Con, specifically with a booth. This is my first time uh, having a booth at, let alone Gen Con or any other show, um, and I expect I'm going to learn a lot about marketing your game and talking to people and what you can do to effectively showcase what you've been working so hard on in your game design at a convention like this. Um, so if there's any questions that you have for next month's segment, please let me know. Either uh, put them in the comments here for this podcast, or you can reach me directly at BeLivesGame on Twitter or Facebook, and I will be happy to address and answer any of those questions that you may have in next month's segment. Uh, until then, uh, you can find me on Twitter, as I just said. You can also visit my website at www.hiddenwithashoe, that's E-M, not T-H-E-M, and uh, happy game designing. I am here with Cassie from the Indie Game Report and Eric from What's Eric Playing to answer some listener questions. First, actually, we have two questions from Brian Compter, who is at Scrapyard Armory on Twitter. The first, where do you look for inspiration for new games and ideas? I want to switch this around since we're not design-focused. What new ideas would you like in games? What are, what are some things you think are maybe missing in the industry that you would like to see games made about or mechanics? Uh, Eric, you want to start? Yeah, sure. Uh, so, ironically, I had just yelled about this on Twitter maybe Tuesday, just asking, you know, if you dropped, you know, zombies, Cthulhu, uh, Mediterranean trading, vague medieval period, it was later pointed out to me that I also should have included colonization on that list. What kind of games do you design? And I just started hearing designs from all sorts of people about all kinds of stuff. And I guess, like, design something that you're excited about, right? If you've got something in your life that you do a fair bit, if it's like mowing the lawn even, see if you can make a cool game out of it. Games with novel themes, novel mechanics, novel concepts are always interesting to me. And I'm also, I also try to look for games from places that I haven't played a lot of games from. So I've played a lot of US games. I've played a fair bit of European games. I'm trying to like look into ways to import more games from say Taiwan, China, Japan. And I've heard some rumblings from I believe a and correct me if I'm wrong, but there was a Nigerian board game design group and there's been some enthusiasm about hopefully like them building up what they're doing enough that we can start seeing some of those games stateside just because the perspective that they bring to the table, people from, you know, different backgrounds, different countries is different than mine. And that's always interesting to see how it expresses itself in a game. I would also say that, uh, Suze, uh, at 425 Suzanne, uh, had a really interesting Twitter thread a few months ago on just, unexplored territory in roll and write games and some of that has since been picked up so like having a central board like in let's make a bus route but also just different and 
a drafting roll and write. That's uh, Growl Games's Boomerang, just funded on Kickstarter a little while ago. But I think that a good way to look for new inspiration is to look at a genre and see if there are any obvious holes or gaps in things that you haven't seen. And then come hit us up. I'm always down to try new weird games. The kind of games that I am uh, hoping to see that I would I really enjoy seeing are, I like games that teach you about a career because there are so many careers out there. And a lot of the educational games that I found are pretty much uh, revolving around the science industry. And um, there's nothing wrong with that. And I think that's really neat. But I'd love to see games that teach me about woodworking like actually woodworking but you can make it fun and like what eric was saying what's something you do that you enjoy make a game about that so there was a game called um circuit breaker that was on kickstarter i don't know i don't think it funded and i think they're going to relaunch but my father's an electrical contractor and i have not seen a game that teaches you about how electricity works and i think you could make a game about how electricity works and make it fun and Circuit Breaker actually ended up being very mildly about electric, but either way, I was like, I've not seen a game that has that kind of theme. I want a game that's going to teach me about how to read music notes. And I want a game that's going to teach me about how to build a computer. You know, I want games that are going, to, and these can be made fun. If you have a lot of development and you actually work on it, you don't have to make it extremely educational or make it difficult for someone to understand what's going on. You can use easy terminology and still teach something. And those are things that I really would like to see come into the industry. And also, not really along those lines, but I'd also like to see games enter the industry that give me kind of like what we talked about in the uh, prior episode of the podcast. I want to talk or feel emotion when I play the game. If so. I love magic. I love Harry Potter and I love wizardly things. I thought Merlin is so cool to me. And I want to play a game that's magic related and I feel like I'm doing, I'm casting spells. I want to play a game where you're sailing on the, you know, in the ocean and you feel like you're in the boat on the ocean. I want games that totally submerse you into what they're trying to make you experience. And I don't always get it from games where, you know, they take a theme and they just slap it onto whatever mechanics they've got. And I wanna feel like I'm in whatever this theme is that you're presenting to me in your game. And I've gotten it before, but I don't get it all the time. And those are the two things I'd really like to see come out in the industry. But I'm just throwing this out there. What if you were the king of a realm and you needed to build the greatest kingdom in all the land? Thoughts? Would you have to collect wheat to feed your people? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Good times. I'm really interested in uh, in mundane topics. Like I tried to design a game about merging in traffic, which I tried to do it as a wallet game, and it was maybe a little too tight and didn't work out. But I really like the idea of finding the maybe maybe fun is a strong word, but the interesting mathematical competitive ways you can approach mundane everyday tasks like traffic or laundry or like Eric said earlier mowing the lawn. So things that are usually considered chores and how can you, I mean, not gamify them in the sense that make the real world thing fun, but make a game out of that topic that would be 
interesting. I'm here for it. Washing the dishes, the board game. Uh, yeah, it's exciting. You could break a dish, you could lose points. I actually have a friend, humorous anecdote, who has sort of the uh, a different problem. So um, the game Factory Funner, it's a super fun game about sort of hooking up machines to do like process engineering in a factory. She is a process engineer by day. And so whenever she, we played Factory Funner together once and she's like, oh no, this is too close to what my actual job is. I can't do this. Like it was just too adjacent to something that she already does in her work day that it made her just <laughs> displeased playing the game. And I thought that was a really interesting, almost endorsement of the like quality of the game's theme that someone who does that as their job could already be sick of it. <laughs> you know, I was talking to a publisher during, I was at Dice Tower convention um, recently, well, yesterday, and I was talking to a publisher about how when you're publishing a game and it's got a theme that you're personally not familiar with, you're now entering this new world and this new realm because you have to learn all about this theme. Uh, the game was about fish and this publisher just totally immersed himself in Facebook groups of people that buy and sell and collect fish. So he could learn about how to make this game feel like it was a good call out to people who would know what's going on. And hopefully it wouldn't stress anybody out to where they wouldn't want to play it. But I think that's really cool. And when publishers take that extra step to try to make a game as close to the theme as possible and and you can tell it's uh, definitely a bonus points to that publisher in my book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and on sort of the more negative side, you see this happen a lot when publishers want to like use aspects from a culture that they're not familiar with and they don't bother paying somebody who is familiar with that culture to give it the once over. And so this immersive theme that they're shooting for just seems appropriative at best and just incorrect or just flagrantly wrong at worst like if you if you understand the idea that someone's going to go into facebook groups for people who enjoy fishing and do the research necessary to make a fishing game feel authentic that's that's the kind of work you should be prepared to do if you want to make your game feel like it has an authentic theme and that's that's not necessarily for everyone. That might not be the kind of game that you want to make, but I'd at least recommend considering it, especially when you're handling topics that are more sensitive than fishing. Definitely. All right. And our second question. Do you ever feel that amateur game designers don't have the proper time, money, or resources to actually build a game that can succeed given the current state of the industry? So we have a lot of big players that have a lot of resources and money to put towards creation of games and then they can sell them at a better rate and to a wider audience so breaking in as an independent publisher or designer can be difficult let's say um so what are your thoughts on that cassie let's start with you i do not think that funding can be an issue if you put in the right amount of time and energy like what we were saying in the uh, original podcast for this episode we said rules first, make your game to a point where you can explain it very well, very clearly, and make sure your game is fun. Yeah, it's a game, but is it fun? And when you have those two and you share it with people, it doesn't matter how beautiful the art is. It doesn't matter the quality of the cards, especially when you're getting to the prototyping and playtesting. If your game is fun, people will remember it and you just keep playing it with people. And sometimes 
honestly, it just takes a lot of time. It's hard to enter this industry and then just like go for it right away. Um, unless you do have, you know, like what you were kind of saying with the question, the funding to pay someone to help you and do amazing artwork or to afford hundreds of dollars of Facebook ads. It's if you don't have that kind of money, it's going to just take your time. You know, that's kind of the two currencies that we live with. We live with time and we live with money. And those are in the real world, the game. <laughs> those are the two currencies we have, you know, so if you don't have one, you've got to use the other. And if you don't have either, that's when it's going to be difficult. But if you have the time, I think that you can definitely be successful. You just have to interact with people and network with people and use the currency that you have to put yourself out there. I agree. I think, though, that it can be fairly daunting, especially to a new designer, especially if you're not operating from a place of... And so I work in tech primarily, so I work with a lot of people who tends to work, you know, solid 40 hour weeks, but not more. Um, the general like cost of living around here is high, but the pay is good. So people don't necessarily have to have other jobs outside of that. And a lot of people I know are single. They don't necessarily have kids yet. They don't have a lot of other responsibilities outside of just work. And having that, that nice combination of both time and money offers you sort of a privilege to engage in what I am going to loosely call as a luxury hobby. Like it's like, you know, it's like Cassie said, if you have time and money, great. If you have time or money, it's going to be challenging. If you have neither time nor money, it's going to be very difficult. And I think that it's important to consider these things, but there are processes and ways to get, you know, get get your name out there. This is where you start trying to maybe interact with the community, maybe work on more on the content creation side, start working with publishers, getting a better sense of the landscape. And once you feel like you're starting to develop an idea of how things work, there are places that you can find or people that you've worked with in the past that might be a good fit for your game design. And there are specifically like indie publishers, smaller publishers, larger publishers that you've built these relationships with that you can then talk to from the perspective of, hey, I'm really interested in this. But you get there by investing into the community and you get out what you put in. So I think there's also that route to being, you know, just starting to see success in your game design is immerse yourself in the community, see what other people are making, learn from their designs, go to play test things. You'll still need time to do it. And you'll still probably need money to do it, but I think it is possible. Yeah. Both great answers. I I'd like to add. I think it it depends on your definition of succeed, which anytime anyone uses the word succeed is usually what I come down to is what do you mean by succeeding? Is succeeding with a game design? It's on every shelf at Target. Is succeeding with a game design? You made a hundred thousand dollars on Kickstarter. Is succeeding with a game design? it finally got to the end of the game and didn't break. So depending on what your actual goals are can can really decide this. There are ways to design games that are very low on money and resources. Time time is a tough one. You, you really do need time for game design, I think. Like right now, I, um, I'm working on some roll and write games that don't have any rolling. They're based off a date and time setup instead. And that's been really interesting and it's that is interesting yeah that's awesome 
from a real from a like a resource perspective it takes almost nothing it's a single sheet of paper it's just been me designing the idea but it's it's also been my most successful game as far as like getting interaction from the twitter community like a lot of people have been playing it and posting pictures of it so it's been i mean very successful is a strong term but it's had some success based on very little resources and money it did take time like you can't get around the time you just need a lot of time but uh also i have to agree with eric on um connecting with people and being part of the community like that's that's a super necessary thing for this unless unless your definition of success is designing a solo game that you enjoy then you don't need community but other than that you need to talk to other people you need to share you need to work with them on their stuff because the community is a very important part of this i think to uh to answer the question, I think people can do it, but you definitely have to put in the work. It's going to cost time. It's possibly going to cost money. There are ways to get around it cheaper, but that's just going to cost you more time. Like it is, it is a massive effort to design games, and if you enjoy it, it's worth it. It's a very fulfilling hobby, possibly a fulfilling job. Okay, so that ends our questions for this episode. Let's just throw out some contact info, and we will be done. So, Cassie, you want to go first? Sure. You can find me on uh, our website, IndieGameReport.com, and I'm also on Twitter, at FriedmanCassie. And I'm uh, at What'sEricPlaying.com, same on Instagram, and you can find me at What'sEPlaying on Twitter. Okay, thank you both for joining me, and have a good day. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for having me on. That's all for this episode. You can get the show notes for all episodes at theboardgameworkshop.com. Follow the show on Twitter at the BG Workshop. Join the show's Facebook group to discuss the episodes and support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash theboardgameworkshop. Thanks for listening.